0: This morning is February 20th. It is Sunday morning. And our topic this morning is going to be raising up the next generation. Uh, obviously, from the picture on the PowerPoint slide, you can see that this morning we're going to dedicate Chloe Ann Piro, uh, or as I affectionately call her, Cap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anytime you talk about dedication, it's important that you consider something. Proverbs 20, 25 says... It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. We have a habit in our culture that is really not good. Somebody says, hey, will you pray for this? Oh, yeah, I'll pray for it. And you never think about them again. Will you do this? Sure, I'll be there. And then it slips your mind. In Jewish thought, to give your word to do something was an important thing when they dedicated something, it meant a whole lot more than just wish it well. So this morning as we go through this message, our real goal is to make sure that we don't fall into a trap by dedicating something rashly, without considering our vows. This morning this message will end with the parents of this baby vowing before God and before the church to do certain things. We have kind of this idea that You hold up a baby and you anoint it with oil or you christen it or you dunk it or whatever it is that whatever church you've been in does, and that somehow just marks them for the Lord and it's okay despite what the parents do. You'll even hear parents sometimes say, well, I dedicated them to the Lord. Yeah, but your life dedicated them to something else. So we need to be very careful that we consider this, that we weigh it carefully, that we look at what's involved. And if you're not sure that you want to move forward afterwards, I think people have to just respect that. You, you decide. You count the cost no different than salvation. In fact, when we talk about this, you can equate it to salvation. Remember that in Luke 14, verses 28 through 30, I like we put scriptures up here. Y'all won't have to flip pages so fast. Jesus said this, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Before you begin any project, you're supposed to calculate whether or not you have what it takes to complete it. Now, there's a beautiful thing about that and you have to be careful not to get discouraged because God often calls you to do something that you're not really capable of doing, but He declares you capable. So that has to go in the equation. As a gentleman once told me in all of your reasoning, Eric, don't reason God out. So as you're estimating the cost of the tower, keep in mind, when you're doing the Lord's work, He'll provide you with what you need. But here's the result if you don't estimate it properly. For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. You don't meet any sadder people on the planet than what you see on Fox News or CNN or whatever you watch when they interview the parents of somebody who's just been convicted of a crime or when they interview the parents and grandparents of somebody who is famous for doing horrible things. It is a very sad thing to raise a child that doesn't turn out well. The Bible speaks about it in drastically different terms. The righteous whose children will inherit the land and be blessed of the Lord and know the Lord's presence. It speaks about other children who don't, who have no hope other than the Lord because their parents didn't set them on the right footing. So this morning, obviously, we're going to work at getting this right. There are benefits to doing it right. There are benefits to raising your children in the Lord. And when we read these, I want you to think about something. We think that just taking our children to church or to Sunday school is raising them in the Lord. That's not any more raising them in the Lord than taking your son to a football game every now and then is raising him in the NFL. That's ridiculous. To bring your children to a sermon, to bring your children to a Sunday school class alone and think that's raising them in the Lord is a huge misnomer. That's really, really wrong. If they see something in Sunday school that they don't see reflected at home, they have 90% of their time seeing error and 10% of it seeing truth. How do you think they'll turn out? You know, I know that people often say, well, I raised Him right. I just don't know what happened. I hate this, friends, because I don't want to convict any parents anywhere. But I'm now a parent. I've got an eight-year-old sitting in here, a four-year-old out there, and one that is still in the womb, 20 weeks old. And the harsh reality is my children are a reflection of me. If my children don't turn out well, there's one person to blame for that, and that's me. Now, having said that, something that is really beautiful about God is there's grace everywhere. The reality is if you didn't do right yesterday, you can choose to do right today. And we serve the kind of God that can make up for years of misbehavior. He has in my life. Has He in yours? Just a few of you? (laughs) Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalms. (laughs) Psalms 102 verse 28. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Get this. You have to live. the, The children are supposed to live In the presence of God. Now, that's a whole lot different than just going to church occasionally, isn't it? Oh yeah, sing, sweetheart. They're supposed to grow up knowing what the presence of God is like. The first time I ever felt the presence of God in my life, I was 18 years old and I was all alone. That's not an indictment of my parents or anybody else. I was fortunate enough to have lots of influences in the parenting realm in my life that were good and I appreciate it. But to raise a child in the Lord and for these promises to be true, we have a unique opportunity here with Chloe Ann. You can start from empathy with her knowing what it feels like to be in the presence of God. I was fortunate enough to do this with Judah. He's certainly not perfect, but the child already knows what the presence of God is. It's something that is almost common to him. And that's how it's supposed to be. You know, everything else was not how it was intended to be and the fact that we're here today is an Act of God's mercy, His grace. Psalm 112, verses 1 through 2. says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The best thing, parents, you can do for your children or anybody else that's within your sphere of influence is show them that you personally delight in the commands of the Lord. When He says... Right here. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. This is not a religious act. This is not going to church. This is not taking a sacrament. This is not getting a baby wet. This is somebody who delights in God and their life shows that. I was reading during worship. I thought about prophesying. I said, you know, I'm a preacher. I I have a real blessing here. I don't have to prophesy. I can preach about it, you know. But Jesus was set apart from his companions because he loved righteousness by being anointed with the oil of joy. When you think about Jesus, you should think about Him with a great big smile on His face because He delighted in the commands of God. He's raising up a generation that will be established forever. He's raising up a generation that will be upright and be mighty in the land. That's, that's what God declares us to be. Our children should be the same thing, but it only happens when you raise them in the presence of the Lord and they see that you delight in God's commands. Proverbs seventeen verse six says, Children's children are a crown to the aged. How about that, Les? My father's also lived to see his children have children. You know? Some of you in here have experienced that. That's a crown of joy. You know, that is a good thing. When you get to see three generations, you are blessed. When you get to see four, it's rare. And it's a blessing, but it's rare. Isn't that awesome, though, that you would be able to look back one day and say, I served the Lord all of my life. My children served the Lord all of their life. My children's children served the Lord all of their life. That would be better than telling somebody that your kids were the President of the United States to me. You know, I often have seen people react or remark, say, hey, uh, uh, are your kids those that are so-and-so? And a mother with great pride. I'm thinking of a particular one in Baton Rouge that says, oh, all of my children are LSU athletes. And says it with, I mean, esteem. And uh, from Baton Rouge, I I certainly understand that. But that ought not even begin to compare with the thought, all of my children love the Lord. They're shaking the earth for God. Oh, you may not know their names, but they're leaving behind them a trail of changed lives. What an awesome heritage. Children's children are a crown to the aged and parents are the pride of their children. You know, our generation, and not just ours, mine, but several before me, have been greatly flawed with something. We've thought that to be good parents, to have our children's affection, we need to be their friends. The Bible teaches us that these righteous parents are the pride of their children. Your children will naturally esteem you. They will love you if they see in you godlike characteristics. If you teach them to love the Lord because they love Him and they see Him working through you, they will already love you. There may be times they don't want to be your friend. There have been times in your life you didn't want to be all that close to God because you felt like He was hammering you. But they will esteem you. They will take pride in you. You know, there's nothing worse than you see it betrayed in film all the time. I watched a show the other night, Friday Night Lights, about a... a football town in Texas and this one kid you could see and I, I it's funny that I think one thing about that movie that draws some people to it is you can relate to many of the characters in it I had a friend that I loved I thought was the greatest guy on earth still did and uh, athlete straight A student all of those things but there were things that his father did that really embarrassed him relating to him in fact it was one of those things where at a sporting event you know you kind of hoped you didn't see the guy's dad. In this movie the other night, uh, a father came out of the stands to chastise his son in front of the whole crowd. You know, The things that the father did embarrassed the son. If you act like God to your children, boy, that sounds egotistical, doesn't it? But if you act like the father, if you treat them with mercy, discipline, love, respect, the same way that God does, they will naturally esteem you. If you act like the other Spiritual power? Well. The foundation for raising children is very obvious. It's marriage.
1: You like that?
0: We got a dark-skinned man and a light-skinned woman up there. I thought that was fitting, Cassidy, Matthew. You'll notice in the rest of the slides, not only is it a dark-skinned man, but it's a redhead. I went clip art crazy with our PowerPoint presentation today. Y'all should have never taught me to use this. If we're, going to talk about, if we're going to talk about raising children in the Lord, if we're going to talk about what it means to dedicate a child and truly consider this, we need to understand what the real purpose is. Because often people have children and they just see the child as an extension of them. Somebody they can live vicariously through. I was... Never a great athlete, so my son's going to be a great athlete. Boy, don't you see that a lot? Except the father doesn't admit he never was any good at it. You know, he was a hero in his own mind. Or you see uh, children as trophies or, or something like that. Children have a very specific purpose, but it starts with marriage. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Whose idea was it to make a helper for the man? God's. Husbands, you ought not complain about your wives. Not ever. It was God's idea that you have a wife. And when you read this, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Man, you were not meant to be alone. Of course, you're unhappy when you're alone. It's a special gifting from God if a man is meant to be alone, and Paul said that. Not every man out there will be married. But if you are not married and you're content with that, it's because God has a special gift on your life. Because we're going to see a very distinct pattern in the Word. And first off, it is God's idea for Adam to need a helper. So God comes up with the idea in verse 18. And now in verse 19, we go through a teaching lesson. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now God already had in mind what He wanted to do here. But when God got it in His mind, Adam didn't necessarily have it. So God brought Adam through a series of exercises to teach Adam something. Names in the Bible always have to do with function. Always. The reason that I pray about what I name my children and choose such strange names compared to the average guys out there is because their names have functional meanings to me. That's a very biblical concept. Jews think functionally constantly. It's us that are more concerned with how a name sounds than what it means and represents. But in the Bible that was not the case. So if Adam was thinking about these names functionally. What did he have to do as each one of these animals passed before him? He had to look at them, think about their function, what they did. He observed them. The Bible teaches us that even the creation magnifies God. It teaches us about God. What Adam is supposed to be learning as each of these creatures are going before him is number one, no suitable helper found. A helper has to come from a special place for Adam. Number two, that he needs a suitable helper. If the squirrels passed before Adam, he saw a male and a female. If the bears passed before Adam, he saw a male and a female. He saw this go on and on and on and realized he was alone, that he needed help. This was God's intent. God always has to take a man to a place where he realizes he needs help. It doesn't come natural (coughs) to us. It takes a teaching lesson. So it says, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what the man would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. How long do you think that took? We have the idea that the first three chapters of Genesis occur in a week or a few days, you know, a couple weeks. How long do you think it took this man to name it? <laughs> How's it go? Kingdom, phylum, class, order, <laughs> genus, species. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I left out family. I knew one <laughs> of you <laughs> brilliant people knew would knew. know that. A few hundred years due to things. Could be. I, I don't know. The reality is man did not really start to age until Satan entered the world. And so I don't have any idea whether Adam's years that are there start at the day that God created him or at the day that... Uh, man started to age. So, in any case, that's an argument for another day. It says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Now that word's not rib really, it's side, but your ribs are on your side. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her back to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. There are times you think, I could never understand this creature that God has me married to. Both, male and female, would think that. They write books about this. Men are from whatever planet and women are from the other one. What is it, Mars and Venus? Okay. There's this general idea that we're not supposed to understand each other. There's a certain amount of mystery involved in it and we're uh, almost incompatible. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is we started with one human being who was split in half and that when these two human beings are rejoined, they're considered one new married entity under heaven. So... When you're raising a child and you begin to have a difference of opinion, realize you're arguing with yourself. When you begin to think, oh, they don't know what they're doing, realize you're arguing with yourself. This spouse, Cassidy and Matthew, are literally one entity in God's eyes. They're one. Verse 24 says, For this reason a man (laughs) will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. One flesh. Now, the reality is when I look out and I see David and Jennifer or I see Matthew and Cassidy or Stephen Darnell or whatever couple I'm looking at, I see two people. But God declares them to be one flesh. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know. How is it that He declares you to be a new creation and yet I also see the old in front of me? God often calls the things that are not as though they were because He's a big God. And if He says it, it's so the sooner that we come around to that idea that if He says it, it's so, uh, the better off we are in life. From Genesis, we see that the man learned of his need for a wife. Matthew needs Cassidy to perform this calling. He needs her. There are times in a marriage where you will have a temptation to think you might be better off as Paul. Or a wife might think, if I wasn't carrying around this baggage, I could really do something. You know, And you find all kinds of ways to justify it. God went through great Trouble went to a great extent to show man he had a need for help. We'll get to the woman's role here in a minute. But we, are, we also see that a man and a woman were originally one and that when, man, or that when married they leave their respective families and become one. I want to emphasize, leave their respective families. Something is wrong with a couple. It is dysfunctional for a couple to remain tied to the families that they come from. There should be love there. There should be admiration there. Maybe even advice there. But that's where it should stop. When a man leaves his mother and father, and notice it doesn't say the woman leaves the mother and father. I sure wish it did. It'd make things clearer. But it doesn't. You know why? It's assumed that because the male was going to be set up as the authority here, that when the man leaves and the woman comes to join him, that you understand we have a new entity under heaven here. But... When you see couples that cannot separate from in-laws, it's a sign of dysfunction. You have to do that. You are meant to stand on your own two feet. That means that Papa Les, who's a great big guy back here, who loves the Lord, will at times differ from what you think needs to be done. You, if you're a wise person, will consider that. You'll weigh it heavily. You'll seek the Lord about it because with age comes wisdom. But in the end, you must choose and you will be held accountable for what your household does. Every newlywed couple has experienced this. And I'll tell you what the biggest trap is. And I just we're being real here. When you need something from an in-law, all of a sudden many in-laws think that buys them the right to usurp your authority. Friends, you don't need anything except what comes from God. You don't. Okay? And if the in-laws understand that and that is the pattern of your life, they'll learn to let anything that they do come from God and not buy them a right to your life. A foundational truth that must be acknowledged in the beginning is that a husband and wife form a new and independent entity under heaven. That's why in marriage ceremonies there's usually a unity candle. And we see this candle represents one life. This candle represents the other life you extinguish those at the same time as you light the one in the center. The two have now become one. The other flames are not supposed to be alive. My wife occupies several roles in her life. She's many things. She's a mother. She's a wife. She's somebody's daughter. But in the marriage, there is a role that takes precedent and that's wife and mother, not somebody's daughter. Every married couple goes through that, but it's important that we get it right. Moving on from there. Couldn't move fast enough, huh? <laughs> the new joint venture, and I know that's a business term, but I thought it might help you think about this. If the two come from one, or if two people come and form one new thing, then what we literally have is a joint venture. Two halves making a whole. This new joint venture has a purpose. Immediately after the fall, battle plans are revealed. Everybody knows Genesis 3.15. I talk about it constantly. And I will put in enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. The He will crush your head here is offspring coming from the woman. So, one thought that I would like you to just plant in the back of your mind for a minute is from the second and third chapter of the Bible. From, from the very beginning, woman plays an enormous role in the salvation of mankind. So when we talk about a woman's liberation movement, or when we talk about equality, understand that God designed this in equality from the very beginning. Two halves making one whole, one new entity. Now one of her roles that we'll see is to produce the Messiah. And not just the Messiah, but the rest of the body of Christ. This is why Paul says, man is not independent. It's okay, baby. We'll bring you back when it's time to anoint you. (laughs) This is why Paul says, man is not independent of woman, and woman is not independent of man. When teaching on the authority and how it flows in a home, if a man gets the idea, (laughs) well, we may be a joint venture, but I'm the managing partner, and begins to exert that authority, he needs to be reminded, you're not independent of woman. You couldn't be here without a woman being obedient to God. And your salvation will not occur without a woman being obedient to God. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there are respective roles. You like the little fight scene there? Love the internet. (laughs) The roles of the partners in this venture. In Genesis 3.16, we see something said to the woman, "...I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children." Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. People often think about this as a, as a curse. Well, the reality is all of us are living in a state of decay waiting for a restoration. This is not a curse. This is what the woman's role would be while we are in the state of decay waiting and working towards restoration. And uh, when you look at this closely, notice something. It says, and He will rule over you. Every guy's ego in here just puffed up really big. But what does that really mean? If you are one entity, not two, but one, what does it mean if one is ruling over the other? It just means decision-making authority, the final word, has to lie with somewhere. God is a God of order. Now, your right hand and your left hand don't get in a fist fight over who's going to open the doorknob. There's a natural order to it. Your right hand just comes naturally doing that unless your Brad, who's left-handed, okay? I mean, there's a natural order to things that doesn't make one greater than the other, neither are independent of the other. Look at the man's rule. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to the dust you will return. Friends, you see in very general terms here that their restoration would come as a husband worked to provide for the family and the wife produced godly offspring. It's like, My God, that sounds arcane. That's, that's ancient. What is wrong with you, Eric? I mean, don't you know we're in a progressive society? Friends, this is not arcane. This is the way that God established it. And you know what? If it's tempered with all the rest of the Scripture, which starting with, these two become one, their roles are not mutually exclusive. They're not independent of each other. They're done together. Proverbs teaches us that a woman of uh, honor helps with income. In the house, She does things that bring her husband honor and helps with income. The Bible teaches us that a husband helps raise children. It's just that these are the primary roles. Have you ever wondered why that is? Even biologically, we're set up different. And anybody that argues that, friends, that's just not very smart. Look at what your eyes show you. Women are different than men. They're different from the beginning. Men are different than women... Neither one is wrong or right. It's like your right hand and your left hand. They have different roles. But would you like to give up either one? No, I I wouldn't either. These are just general terms, okay? I'm not telling you that all women are supposed to do this. I can hear it now. Eric said women are barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen. It's Not what I'm saying. Not at all. I'm just telling you that in the foundation of the marriage, one was meant to carry the burden of provision... The other was meant to carry the burden of child-rearing. And in reality, they do it together. Those are just where their roles would lie. Uh, I hope nobody wants to stone me for that. This is what the Bible says. Now, this is important. And I want to tell you real quickly why it's important. When you see these roles grossly out of order, not that they can't overlap, but when you see that they have totally exchanged places, you find real weirdness. You, I mean, you really do. When a woman is made to be the sole bearer of income for her family, which it does happen, and it can happen temporarily, but it's never supposed to be the design. What happens is uh, you see a breakdown in the marriage. I'm not saying it can't sustain it, it can, but that's not how it was meant to be. When you stick a husband solely watching children and not providing, they don't do very well. Now, there are always exceptions to these rules, but I'm talking about God's design, okay? Okay? Adam heard the promise and their respective roles and then exuberantly declared the woman to be Eve. Prior to this she had always been called woman, now he names her. Why? What are names having to do with? Function. He heard her function and he says, Wow baby, you are going to be the mother of all that is alive on the earth. They had just been sentenced to death, but he heard her function. You want to talk about equality? The woman's function was to bring life to the earth. We see perversions of this in all the cultures of the world. This is why Egyptians worshipped a female deity that had to do with life. This is why there's still a worldwide church that has a huge emphasis on something that they shouldn't. Worshipping a female deity because she brought forth life. That's Genesis 3.20. Genesis 3.20. The foremost purpose in marriage is to produce the offspring that would crush the head of the enemy. Now, this is the primary reason that marriage is under immense attack. Marriage was meant to produce children and children would form the body of Christ. I know people always wonder, well, the Messiah has already come. The Messiah was here 2,000 years ago. Women produced the Messiah. So why is it still childbearing? Why is that important? The body of Christ is not complete yet. Our head is in heaven. We are assembling the body. Chloe Ann Pirro will be a part of the body of Christ if her parents raise her right. Judah Benjamin Stevens will be a part of the body of Christ if I do what God has called me to do. Is this arcane or progressive? Probably the most controversial verse in all of the Scripture. Maybe not all of the Scripture, but... Let me say this has been a lightning rod in the last 40, 50 years. It's 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without angering, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women, or your footnote says she, will be saved or restored through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Can you see why that might anger some people? In fact, it's difficult to understand at first glance, but if you examine the pattern, what you find is that Paul understood it. He's teaching that women everywhere are saved in the same hope as Eve, that the seed from her body will crush the enemy. There's no difference between a woman today and Eve herself. You are hoping that something comes from your body that will be meaningful in God's economy that will complete the body of Christ or if you were before the Messiah, that would produce the head of the body of Christ to crush the enemy. Well, what's this business about quietness and full submission? Speaking of an uh, idea where there's dissension, argument of uh, pretension, argument over who is right in a situation, Paul is saying, this is not the woman's place to decide. If they've discussed it and there's an argument over who's right, this is an area where she needs to go ahead and submit and be quiet about it. You know what? God will show that husband if he was wrong. That's, that's literally what He's teaching. This is right out of Genesis. Your desire will be for Him and He will rule over you. But you notice your desire will be for Him? If this is done right, if the husband is not overbearing, if the wife is not resistant to God's authority, then it will be something that's desirous to both of them. Not a henpecked husband and not a browbeaten wife. This will be one unit... No different than a president and vice president of a company or some other joint venture. There can be an argument in the boardroom, but at the end of the day, somebody has to decide and God gave that right to a man. For this to happen, everyone needs to understand and embrace their roles. If we're going to see salvation occur like it's supposed to, everybody has to embrace their roles. This is why it's so destructive to a household. When either the woman or the man refuse to embrace the roles. When a husband will not stand up and lead, the children suffer. When a wife will not follow the leading of the husband, the children suffer and you can see it all around you. It's how you get a generation of confused kids that don't want to achieve, that don't want to do anything, that are content to smoke pot and play Xbox for the rest of their lives. Jesus has already come. Why go on with childbearing? The body of Christ is not complete yet. Your children are meant to help complete it. I got a little cooperation sign down there. You see that? These two halves have got to function as one unit for this to work. Your children watch that more than anybody else. Arcane or progressive? You need to decide whether you think God's principles are arcane or progressive. Yeah, that's pretty cool there, isn't it? Um, the joint ventures attacked. You see the redhead over here and the uh, dark-skinned man with the baby? Uh Dark am I yet lovely, huh, Piro? Or Perot? Yeah, well, they're behind (laughs) (laughs) y'all. The joint venture is attacked. Because God called this as a foundational building block, there is an enemy who opposes you and of course he attacks it. From the beginning, Satan has worked to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life, and have it to the full. Now how did Jesus get here? He was born born through what? A A woman. Salvation may come through the man, but he was born from a woman, neither independent of the other. Both are embracing their roles for salvation to happen. His work to steal, this is Satan here, has worked to steal the promises of God from our hearts. Most, Uh ethnic groups around the world contain the knowledge within their own folklore, within their own culture that they've been separated from God. But the devil has worked to steal from them the promise of restoration or pervert the promise of restoration so that they're doing things that they ought not do. I mean, read books like Eternity in Their Hearts. It'll teach you that principle. He has worked to kill our children, the literal and figurative source of our redemption. This has been going on from the beginning. Wow, this woman's function is to be the mother of the living? Let's kill her children. And He got one to kill the other. And most of all, He has worked to destroy our marriage covenants so that we do not produce the fruit that God intended. You'll find out in marriage there's something particular that God wants. I don't know if you knew this, but I put a page number on this slide for you. Page 1064 in the Thompson chain. This is Malachi 2, 13 through 16. That's because if you don't turn to anything else while we're here, you should turn and read this with me. You see these little figurines that are tearing something, the man and the woman? That's because adultery literally means an awful tearing. Something that is torn that was once together. Malachi 2.13-16 through says this, another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. He never accepts your offerings with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner. Joint venture here. Partner. Your wife is supposed to be your partner. Your husband is supposed to be your partner. Sure, one of you has 51% and the other 49 because God had to establish order. But you are partners. "'Has not the Lord made them one?' That's a rhetorical question. Every Jew that was reading this knew that you were supposed to be one. In flesh and in spirit, they are His. And why one? Why did God make them one, the Scripture says? And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. You've heard that God hates divorce, haven't you? I mean, people are quick to quote that Especially, especially if they want to disqualify you from being in the church for some reason, right? Oh, God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce? Let's not strain at an ant and swallow a camel here. Why does God hate divorce? Because the goal of two becoming one was that you would produce something. One life would be changed forever and go out and change other lives. You're supposed to produce Godly offspring. You're supposed to. That's the design. That's how God put it together. So why does he hate divorce? Because it either prevents children from being uh, born and then raised into the body of Christ, or if there's a divorce while the children are in the home, it screws up the children so they might not function right in the body of Christ. So you wonder why we have a 50% divorce rate or whatever it is we have these days? That's why. Because God hates it and the devil works to it. Now, if you're in here and you've been divorced... I'm not throwing any stones at you. I've done horrible things in my life and I've been redeemed from it. That's who you were, not who you are today. But that's why it hurt the way that it did. But God is able to graft you in again, the Bible says. And I, you know, you can look around you and see beautiful stories of restoration in here. The fact that there was an awful tearing at some point in your life, something horrible happened and you were ripped apart from somebody that God joined you together with doesn't mean that in His grace you don't find another that He joins you to. In fact, you find that He usually does. Marital division of any kind. Look at what Mark 10, verse 6 says. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not Separate. The enemy attacks in this area to prevent you from raising children in the Lord in completing the plan. We're no longer two, but one. Now, friends, when he says, let man not separate, you need, to, you need to be wise. Matthew, Cassidy, y'all need to be wise. This is not just, don't let the husband separate it. This is, don't let any human being come between it. Don't let anybody get a foot of division in there. Protect your home for your children's sake, if not for your own. If you detect in your home an influence that is trying to separate you, kill it or get rid of it, okay? Because the purpose of your marriage is to raise godly children. If something's interfering with that, get rid of it. I don't care who it is or what it is. It's wrong. Jesus Himself said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What if Joseph had divorced Mary? or put her away quietly before they were actually married. I mean, after all, she's pregnant and he didn't do it. He knew in his heart they were supposed to be one, and yet he was tempted to tear them apart because he didn't like something that it looked like she did. What if he had done that? We wouldn't have a book of James. Jesus wouldn't have had the other six brothers and sisters he had. You know? Be one. You were called to be one. Be one. Why did God call you? This is really interesting. Why did God call Matthew Pirro or Eric Stevens or David Hall or Steve? How, uh, why did He call us? Well, let's look at why He called the Father of our faith. Everybody sang the song when you were little about Father Abraham? I didn't, but I've heard that everybody does. <laughs> Genesis 18, verse 18. Abraham will surely become a great nation and a powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his household and so he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham began a nation. James 2.23 says that he was called God's friend. And he was not chosen to build a nation. He was not chosen to bless other nations, not to institute circumcision or not for any other powerful thing that he did. He was chosen to direct his children and his household. The other things are the result of that. See, if he had not raised Isaac, the nation wouldn't have happened. The blessing wouldn't have happened. All of those things. First and foremost, Matthew P. Rowe is called more than to be a worship leader, more than to bless you, more than anything else to be a husband to his wife and a father to his children. We're going to find out in the New Testament that ministry flows out of the home. It's a requirement. Everything we accomplish for God can be lost in one generation if we do not raise our children correctly. I can't tell you the number of men of God in the Bible that conquered kingdoms for God and raised hellions for children. And so Israel fell right back into sin. I've heard always that the preacher's kids are the worst. Friends, that ought not be so. I know why it is. They see hypocrisy in the home compared to what they saw behind the pulpit. It cannot be that way. What if the God of the universe has invested in you? I'm sorry. The God of the universe invested something in you and He intended for it to be passed on. We're supposed to raise up the next generation of believers. That's our role. Even if you don't have kids, if you're somebody that is called, especially like Paul, to be single, you ought to be raising up spiritual children around you. Everybody ought to have in their life a Paul figure. Somebody that builds into their life, teaches them true doctrine. Everybody ought to have in their life a Barnabas figure. Somebody that will walk this thing with you that will stand beside you, that you can gain strength from, and everybody ought to have a Timothy figure in your life. Somebody that you're building into, that you're pouring out. For a vessel to be healthy in the Lord, you need to be being filled and need to be being poured out. You just need that. Psalm 78, 1-7 says, O oh my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things from of old. What we have heard and known and what our fathers have told us, we will not hide from them our children. I'm sorry, I can't read on the screen from down here. Hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born and they would in turn tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds but would keep His commands. Do you understand how this is supposed to work? One generation is supposed to see awesome works of God. They're supposed to tell the next generation. Who will tell the next? The generation not even born yet. And this teaches them from birth, trust God. Now, I've taught you in English, trust is a word that means faith, God. When we talk about have faith, raised in faith, you have to teach your children they can trust God. You have to first teach them they can trust you. And then that they can trust God because you're trusting God. That's how they learn that. And they grow up in it and they teach their children. And then the revelation of the knowledge of God grows progressively, exponentially, throughout generations. We ought to know more than our parents did at the end of our lives. We ought to outgrow what they did. I have my son sitting in these services because I'm hoping that by the time he's 20 years old, he knows what I knew when I was 40 and he can build upon it. And by the time he has children, it will be bigger. Every parent hopes their children have a better life than they did. Every parent does. But hope it spiritually, not materially. One generation raising up the next. Here's a misunderstood scripture. Proverbs 22.6 Train a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. How have you heard this quoted? You've heard this said, as well, I don't know what happened. I raised him right. But the Word says if you raise him upright, then he'll return later. Acting as if, because you raised him, supposedly right, even if he's living like a hellion, he will come back. It's not what the word says. It says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Meaning that throughout his life, he will stay in the Lord. Now, this train, boy, we, you know, your footnote will say start. It's so much more than train or start. It's just hard to even comprehend. What you see here is a Strong's definition. The Old Testament 2596 word in the Strong's Concordance, which is kind of our basic uh, Hebrew lexicon for us. It's our basis for defining words. You see that this is figuratively to initiate or discipline, dedicate or train up. When you're thinking of training a child in the way that he should go. You should be thinking of discipline. You should be thinking of starting them, setting them on the right course. You should be thinking of training them in the way that an athlete trains, teaching them to be dedicated to the Lord. When we say train a child right, train him in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it, how many parents really do that? How many parents are teaching their children that they need to be dedicated to the Lord? They're not only starting them in the right direction with physical and spiritual training, they are working on it. You know, little things that this can occur. Your child has a piggy bank. Let your child see needs in other people's life and give out of his piggy bank and then give something back that he can see is from God. You're training him how to live a godly life, you're training them. This train a child in the way they should go is not slap oil on their head. It's not christen them. It's not baptize them. It's not shove a wafer and wine in their mouth. It is something that is a lifelong process at least in our country until they're 18 years old. Do you know that the Jews, how they looked at this? How they look at it? You see it in bar mitzvahs. Do you know what a bar mitzvah is? This is the day where a child will carry out The Torah, big golden Torah scroll, containing the very commands of God. And they will sing and all. And then the child will recite passages from the Torah. If he does not get it right, there's a punishment for the people there. If he drops the Torah, there's a punishment for the people there. But provided that he says the right words, he reads them out of the Torah correctly, he recites them correctly. You know what the Father then says? Thank you, God, I'm released from my obligation. Because it was his job to raise that child in the Lord until the child was old enough to understand for himself and read for himself and find out the commands of God. Now, we've pushed that date back a little further. And many of you will question whether it's pushed back far enough. You know, I'm hearing lately, and it upsets me. It boils in my spirit. I'm hearing lately, well, you know, they're just so young. They're only 20 and they're getting married. Or, I can't believe they want to do that. That kid is only 24 years old. How can he go start a business or whatever? Or, they're only 30. Lord, at what age are we supposed to be adults? In the Bible, at 13, you were considered a son of the command. You say, oh, well, that's okay. It's God's pattern. Okay? It's God's. In fact, people are hitting puberty earlier and being asked to wait for what they were intended for in marriage until later. No no wonder immorality has grown. It's unnatural. Say, oh well, he's he's just twenty-seven years old. I mean, cut in some slack. He's supposed to have been a man now for all of these years. Quit treating your kids like their children into adulthood. There's a day that if this is done right, this woman laying in Cassidy's arm will grow up to be a mature, independent. Child, the way that God intended. And she will leave her father and mother and unite to a man on their calling. And Matthew and Cassidy, just like I will, will be tempted to want to influence it, to control it, to direct it. But God says no. Discipline, dedicate, initiate, train. Like my funny pictures there? I hope it will leave a memory in your mind though. Train, start, discipline, dedicate. Look at these Scriptures how this works. Exodus 12, 24 says, Obey these instructions. This is speaking of the Passover. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you... Matthew, Cassidy, you're going to have to be very careful. You know this from having children already. Children ask lots of questions. My Gabe has set a record. Man, he can, he can ask you more questions without taking a breath, I bet, than any kid on the planet. God designed children to be inquisitive for a reason. They're supposed to be watching their parents asking questions about their lives so that they can learn about God. Verse 26, And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. Notice this. Not what does this ceremony mean to your church. Not what does this ceremony mean to grandma and grandpa. What does this mean to you? say, well, I may not have believed, but I brought my kids to church. You coward. You think that absolves you of your responsibility to raise these children, right? What does it mean to you? Tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when He struck down the Egyptians. Now, these Jews knew this. They passed it on to their children, in fact, at a Seder feast, and we're going to do one. Uh, we won't do it on the Passover. We'll do it as it corresponds to our Easter because we're Gentiles. But we will do one. We'll do it in here with the triclinium table and all the foods. So it'll be neat. Oh, wow. But the way that everything's initiated is children ask questions. That's how the Jews do it. At all of their feasts, right. children ask questions. Right. And then the senior most member in the house answers. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. He doesn't say just tell them. doesn't say make sure they can read it. Impress. I put a picture of a stamp, a seal next to it. What does it mean to impress something? Pressure if necessary. Force if necessary. Whatever it takes, you should stamp this upon them, the commands of God. Talk about them when you sit at home. And when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Do you understand what God's saying? He's saying you need to live this. It needs to be an example in your home, out of your home, in your workplaces, on the roads. Every, when you wake up and when you go to sleep, live for the commands of God because it will impress them upon your children. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If I told you Steve was training to be a, a cyclist, would you expect that he'd get out and do some road work on a bicycle? If Bobby's training to be a boxer, would you expect him to do some road work and to be sparring? Why is it that we think train a child in the way that he should go means give him a certificate and... uh make sure you save their christening gown. Training is just what it says. Training. No different than an athlete would train. And instruction of the Lord. You know, your children should not hear the gospel from preachers alone. They should hear it from you. You know, instead of having a Power Ranger as your child's hero, perhaps biblical characters could be. Instead of telling them ghost stories, perhaps you could tell them about the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. You know, I found out something. They love it. They love it. If you make it real to them, they'll never grow up thinking that this book is boring because it's not. Shipwreck, snake bites, what kids don't love that? Raised from the dead? Killing giants? Conquering nations? What what kids don't love that? There's even beauty contests in the Bible for precious little girls like the one that Cassidy has and I will have. Marriage is the foundation of God's plan and family is the foundation of ministry. His means of carrying out the plan. If marriage is the unit that begins God's plan, then His means of carrying out the plan, the ministry itself, has to flow from that. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 1-13. We're going to close here soon. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, and by the way, an overseer is a pastor. So I put that picture of a pastor up there. Y'all like that? Yeah, that's me. Minus the gown. Here's a trustworthy saying. Oh, we got the overseer of the noble task. Verse 2. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife. I got into a long debate with somebody at Panera Bread the other day. Husband of but one wife doesn't mean you can't ever have been divorced, forgiven, and remarried. Husband of but one wife means one wife at a time. That was the design. It was the design in the beginning. But we were in a society where converts might have had more than one wife. That's okay. It's, it's not the design, but if you're converted from some other nation where it's not illegal, some other religion that has polygamy in it, and you're converted, you just can't be a leader in the church. Now, since I haven't encountered that, I don't know what we do with the wives. I, I haven't encountered it in, Praise God, hopefully somebody wiser than me will do it. But that's, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean you can't be divorced. God can forgive anything. It means you can't have more than one wife at a time. Uh, there are people who are going to hear this CD and just die. I know that. But that's what. study it. Look into it. You have to be really, really short-sighted not to get this if you just read it a few times. Self-controlled, uh, temperate. Husband or but one wife. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Hospitable. Able to teach. Why does he have to be able to teach? It's his function. But you think teach the church, don't you? He's got to be able to teach his kids. You're going to find out his family. That's a requirement for a deacon too. Not given to drunkenness. Oh, I thought it was grape juice. Well, that's a whole other sermon. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Isn't that interesting? And so many overseers just talk about money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, (laughs) not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. If you want to be a preacher, if you want to be a deacon, which is essentially a foot washer in the church, a requirement, because any of these positions are positions and therefore, by definition, have authority with them, and people look at these positions, you first have to manage your own family well. Say, well, what about me? I don't have a family. It's okay. Paul didn't either. Okay, but if you have a family, you better manage it well. And if you don't have a family, you better show some serious maturity that would let us know that if you did have a family, you'd manage it well. I always get that question from the single guys. Am I excluded from ministry because I don't have a wife? No, at least you don't have three, then you'd be excluded. Ministry flows from the family. The reason that ministry flows from the family is that families are the building blocks for the body of Christ or the family of God. You know, the body of Christ is considered to be the family of God. Hebrews says that. How can you be a manager in the family of God if you have not succeeded in being a manager in the family that God first gave you? First, we prove faithful over small things and then the larger Happy to say that Matthew and Cassidy are doing well with this. When we fail to obey God by training our children and managing our household, the results are painful. Look at Proverbs 29, 15. The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces who? Who? His mom. Why? Because our primary roles in the beginning meant that the point of contact for those children was the mother. Does it disgrace the father too? Sure, they're one. But he says disgraces the mother. Why is that? She usually spends the most time with the kids. That's her primary function. Your kids don't act right. It's a disgrace on the mother, which is also a disgrace on the father. But I just wanted you to notice where the emphasis was placed. When a husband says, I just don't know. I can't handle this stress. I mean, it's just too hard to provide for this family. You don't have a choice. It's your role that God gave you, and you can because God gave you the role. When a wife says, I just I can't handle all these kids, it's overwhelming, I just can't do it. Oh, sure, help her. But you can because it's your role. It's what God called you to do. And even if you're not capable in and of yourself, God will give you the capability. He will make you competent. That's like somebody said, well, when my husband acts like this, he doesn't have to act like it. He is. When my wife begins to act like a mother, she doesn't have to act like it. She is. It's what we are. It is our role in the creation. We need to embrace that. It's how the plan of salvation works and it's how we raise families. Guys, we can complain about it. We could argue. We could wish we could switch roles. You can't. It's how God designed you. Subtlety. This thing doesn't happen overnight. We don't need to read all of this, but there's a verse in Proverbs that talks about a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And poverty comes on you like a bandit. And he's talking about a vineyard situation. Somebody attacking you like an armed man because you were lazy, you were slothful. And that's easy as long as it's far and removed. Think about it with your children, the crops God is calling you to raise. You know how this starts? I didn't want to make a scene in the restaurant. I did. It's so much easier. Just go, go play in your room. I don't want to deal with this right now. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands and before you know it, you've got a teenager that nobody can control who you're not very proud of anymore. Parents, we have to be diligent. We have to be hyper-vigilant about it. And you know what? I'm criticized often. You're so hard. You talk about beating those kids all the time. I'd rather be too hard on them than a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands and have an enemy, you see over here, trying to devour my children. I'm not going to do it. And you know what? I find out God gives me a little grace. I'm learning how to do this a little better all of the time. So if you don't like what you see, be patient. I trust the fruit. The fruit speaks for itself. Be diligent in keeping your kids and watching your kids. Something scary. We're going to cover this and we're going to look at the good examples and we're going to close. Great men who failed greatly. Gideon. He conquered kingdoms for God. But one of his sons, Abimelech, murdered the other 69 on a single stone in a single day. Could you really call him a great success? No, Israel was plunged into idolatry after that. Everything he did in his life was lost in the next generation. Eli, he judged Israel for 40 years. They had two hellions for sons, Hophni and Phineas. They were sleeping with women in the temple. Eli didn't do anything wrong. Eli did not commit a sin there, except he failed to reprove his children. So Eli died a shameful death, fell over backwards in a chair, broke his neck, and his line ceased in Israel in a single day for failing to discipline his children. Why did God call Abraham? Because he would train his children in what is right. Eli failed in that regard. Samuel, he was an awesome prophet, probably the most awesome prophet you can think of for the period. Maybe the last judge, depending on how you look at it. Did you know that he had two sons, Abiah and Joel? They did what Hophni and Phinehas' sons did. They were perverted. They accepted bribes. In his old age, I'm sure that saddened him. It was a mar on a wonderful life. David had heart after God. He killed giants and was a great king. But he had a son that was a rapist. He had a son that led an insurrection and slept with his wives in public view on top of a palace. had constant familial infighting. And look at his son, what he produced. Solomon, all the wisdom in the world. But what did Solomon do? sacrifices, human sacrifices in the temple. You know, these are areas of these great men of God's lives where they failed greatly. You may never kill a giant, Matthew. may not have the opportunity. Although if I get any fatter and you get mad, you never know. <laughs> but if you raise your family, you will have succeeded where other great men failed. Let's look at the right examples. All my Catholic friends are like this. We're going to start with Mary. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, Yahweh's salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her six months, for nothing is impossible with God. Look at Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. I want you to think about this. We say, oh, well, yeah, that's Mary. I mean, she was having Jesus. Of course she was happy. Mary was not married. Mary had never slept with somebody, and now she's got to go explain to her conservative Jewish family I'm pregnant, and Joseph and I did not sleep together. She's got to go explain to her betrothed, this baby, oh, it's God's. How would you like that job? There was no debating, there was no deliberating. There was no, let me think about it and get back to you. Mary understood the pattern from the beginning. Her role in life was to produce godly offspring and hopefully the Messiah. So she responds with, I am the Lord's servant. Mary Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. When mothers will look at, when parents will look at the plan of God for their life and say, regardless of the cost, Regardless of the inconvenience, may it be to me as you have said. I'm fearful about one thing. We're having a child that is a girl, a third child, and I, I'm so excited. But my whole life I've thought about, and my wife has talked about, having four boys. So it has occurred to me that because I have these names for these other two boys, that we might be talking about five kids. <laughs> that is scary because I have this provision burden he has the child bearing burden I have the provision burden we understand our roles but let me answer in Mary's heart I'm the Lord's servant may it be to me as you have said I know that's your heart Matthew, Cassidy Cassidy's had three children in the space of my last one child is that a burden? is that hard? yeah but may it be to me as you have said I'm your servant God he wants godly offspring like that baby Look at Manoah. Those of you that didn't know, I'm not mispronouncing Noah's name. This is Samson's father. It's Judges 13, verse 6. The woman went to her husband. She's been barren, by the way. The woman went to her husband. Woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I love that. I don't know why I don't expect the ancient Hebrews to talk like that, but dude, he was like awesome. <laughs> I didn't ask him where he came from. He didn't tell me his name. We <laughs> yeah, didn't have a normal conversation. But he did say to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Notice again, not just the pain of having a child, her whole life was going to have to change. All these restrictions, no wine, no fermented drink, don't eat anything unclean, all of these things, her life would change, it would require sacrifice. Now listen to Manoah. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah. Manoah asked for and received instruction from God regarding how to raise a son. Mary said, hey, this is going to be difficult, but let it be to me as you have said. I'm your servant. Manoah says, wow, this is huge. It's going to require enormous life changes. You've got to send somebody to teach me. I have to know how to do this. Help me, Lord. And God heard him. Guys, you have a church. The principles of, of family are going to be taught in this church. They'll be displayed in these two lives over here. Hannah, Samuel's mother. After he was weaned, this is 1 Samuel 1:24 through 24-28. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young, with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Mary had a way of understanding she was God's servant. And she said, Lord, let it be done to me as you have said. Manoah said, Lord, it's going to be a great inconvenience but I'm so excited. Just send me some instruction. I want to know how you want this done. Hannah said, you gave him to me, Lord. I'm going to give him back to you. His whole life long, he belongs to you. We ready for vows, P-Rose? Y'all come stand up here with me over here. You like our little pictures on there? Okay, I'm going to ask you all some questions you answer before your church body as witnesses. These are vows to God Almighty. Now, these are not to uh, a Hindu God, they're not to Buddha. Who said yes or I <laughs> Like Mary and Joseph, will you view parenting as your service to the Lord? Yes. Like Manoah, will you ask for and accept instruction from the Lord regarding training, Chloe, and righteousness? Yes. yes. Yeah, probably very often. (laughs) Like Hannah, will you yield your will for Chloe's life to God's will, acknowledging and acting as if her whole life belongs to the Lord? Yes. Even when that special man comes around one day? Yes. Elope. (laughs) Finally, will you train her through your actions, this is the most important one, and discipleship to love the Lord with all of her heart, soul, mind, strength? Come on. This is uh, Chloe and Piro that we're going to pray for and present to the church. And then they'll get this certificate attesting to this day. So I'm going to grab this oil. Y'all can stand up, stretch out your hands. After we do this, I'll read y'all that certificate. Here, you you do this too. Can never have too much oil on a baby's head. Jesus, Jesus, we lift this precious baby up to You. Lord, we mark her head with oil symbolizing Your Spirit. Lord, these parents will teach her to love You all the days of her life. They will impress Your commands upon her. Lord, we're asking for Your divine leading and guiding to be upon her life that she will be marked even from this point forward with your Spirit to draw her into a deeper walk with you. Lord, we thank you for this gift, this bundle of joy. We pray for your anointing to be upon Matthew as the leader in his home and Cassidy, whose primary job is raising up godly children. Lord, let this joint venture be blessed by God. Let them understand and embrace their calling and serve as an example to this whole church. Lord, we love them. This church body takes oaths now before God to support this holy endeavor. In the name of Jesus, we dedicate Chloe and Piero. Amen. Amen. Let me read y'all this so you know what you're getting into just by attending today. I don't know if I can read it on there. Let me read it here. It says this certificate was presented on February twentieth, two thousand and five as a testament to the dedication of Chloe Ann Pirro before the Lord and His servants at Life-Changing Ministries and Fellowship. Servants, that's all of you. Matthew John Pirro and Cassidy Pontiff Pirro have both taken solemn pledges before our God in the name of Jesus the Christ to train Chloe Ann Pirro in the ways of our faith. They understand that it is the will of our God to have one godly generation raise up the next and have pledged to carry out this responsibility with all diligence and faithfulness. We, the body of life-changing ministries and fellowship, pledge to support this holy endeavor using the authority that Jesus has endowed His church with to correct His people, encourage them, and instruct them in the ways of holiness. To one holy end, the raising of a godly family, do we, the body of life-changing ministries and fellowship, unite with Matthew and Cassidy Pirroh in this high honor from the Lord. That's our pledge to them. We're going to see this baby raised in the Lord. <laughs> Y'all, let's pray one more time.